Amen. I think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline, says Christ's Prayer for Believers. Have that to follow along. We're at the end of John chapter 17 today. The last seven verses of John chapter 17. One comment about my tie. Several of you have commented I have uh, four Christmas ties, so I have to wear them. December, or they're just going to hang for another year. This is Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim and Norman Rockwell. It doesn't quite look like that from way in the back, but when you get up close, you'll be able to tell it's a Norman Rockwell painting put on a tie, and there's nothing bad about it. So the fact that several of you have mentioned it, I thought I ought to just bring that to light. They uh, actually like it. I think it's cool, but here nor there. John 17, in the last seven verses, we have come to the end of the upper room discourse. We have been four chapters in John and Jesus' last words to his disciples. And now we've come to the the end of the end, the last of the last words. What Jesus says to his disciples and Here out we start the last week of his life. So this is a really important text. What are the last things Jesus is going to communicate to his disciples? And we have it here. Look at John 17, starting at verse 20. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. So this is part of his prayer. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to this last passage in this very important part of your word. We ask that we might hear it, that we might listen well, that we might understand it, that we might see 
its importance for us here and now. We ask that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story of a real church in a real town with real people, although it's hard to believe. The church is or was the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Massachusetts. Church had been in town for years, was known around town for two things in particular. First, it had a tremendous softball team. They won enough championships in the church softball league to make the Patriots jealous. And second, every member of the church had a bumper sticker on the back of their car that read, God is with us, all caps, at Emmanuel Baptist Church. However, the church had fallen on hard times lately. There was constant disagreement and infighting among the pastor and the deacons, accompanied by continual complaining and criticism from the congregation. Even the softball team lost the championship this year to the upstarts from Temple Beth Shalom and their star pitcher, David Goldstein. The situation continued to decline until the deacons decided to call a congregational meeting to decide what should be done. However, for the last three Sundays, the pastor wouldn't let them make the announcement. So one Sunday, right after the announcements, Deacon Fowler walked up to the front of the church, pulled out a piece of paper, and began to read, this is to announce a special congregational assembly, when suddenly couldn't be heard anymore. The organist had cranked the volume all the way up and began pounding out the old hymn, Have Thine Own Way. (laughs) But before she could get to the second stanza, Deacon Fowler yanked the power cord from the wall. It was an awkward silence. People coughed nervously and crossed their legs. The choir leaned forward, and one of the tenors was taking notes. Then Deacon Bryson, no relation, got up and walked towards the pulpit of the church. And as he passed the pastor, he got his feet tangled up in the loose power cord from the organ, and he fell down. The pastor delayed a moment before reaching down to help him up. But the delay was just long enough to convince those in the front of the church that the pastor must have pushed Deacon Bryson to the ground, which was exactly what Deacon Bryson thought because he bounced to his feet and hit the pastor square on the nose with a solid right hook. The lapel mic registered the impact. Well, then everybody screamed. The majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching and shoving. Many people came down the aisle and joined in the fight. Mrs. Dahl, president of the Dorcas Society, the ladies' missionary group, launched a hymnal at the men fighting. But she was not a member of the church softball team, and her throw was high and to the right, and this hymnal missile sailed right through the center of the choir. Well, after that, two tenors and a baritone leaped over the wooden railing of the choir and began exchanging blows with members of the Christian Ed Committee. (laughs) Meanwhile, the organist had moved over to the piano and tried to restore order by playing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. (laughs) In the midst of the brawl, somebody grabbed the new flower arrangement, which was in a vase full of water, and threw it at the deacons. 
Alas, this person didn't play for the church softball team either. For the flowers in the vase full of water flew out over the pews and shattered against the wall right over a visiting Presbyterian who finally experienced full immersion. (laughs) The fight finally ended when the police arrived and cleared the church. Two days later, everyone involved in the fight received a notice to appear at the city courthouse for a hearing. And of course, everyone sat on their respective sides in the courtroom waiting for the judge to enter. And when he walked in, everyone immediately knew who he was, for his honor was none other than David Goldstein, the star pitcher from Temple Beth Shalom. (laughs) I know you, Judge Goldstein said, and we may have our difference on the softball field, but the cause of religion in our city is at stake here. There must be some way you can settle your dispute among yourselves. I'm dismissing the case. No charges will be pressed at this point, but I urge you to work this out within your own church. Your Jesus Christ may allow this sort of thing in his followers, but this state will not permit fistfights as a regular order of a worship service. So everyone left the courtroom got in their cars and drove off in different directions. And on the back of each car was a bumper sticker saying, God is with us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Three months later, the pastor resigned. Three years later, the church closed its doors. In this case, disunity spelled death. True story. And I'm afraid you could find probably find a similar story across any and all Christian denominations. Certainly this case is an extreme. But what difference does unity make? And when Jesus prays for our unity, what does he really want? Let's take a look at what he says. We start by seeing the model of oneness, the model of oneness. That's the first blank. Starting at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Here in John 17, we have one of those unique occasions when Christ spoke directly about Christians living today. He foresaw a continuing community of believers, the church. And so he prayed specifically, verse 20. So I do not ask for these only, the disciples who were around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Think about that. Christ was praying for you and for me. And not only was he praying for us, but look at what he was praying for. Verse 21, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The model of oneness is the relationship that Christ has with God the Father. And Christ wants us to have the same kind of relationship with each other. He wants us to be part of each other's lives, sharing the word together, sharing the work together. Notice the key to oneness is Christ. Christ in us, the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ, living in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And only as that is true in each of our lives will we be able to live as one. See, the Father and the Son, by means of the promised Holy Spirit, Live in the disciples, that's us, so that the disciples become the sphere of Christ's activity. And as disciples, you and me remain in the vine in Christ, we bear fruit. This only comes about as we stand in dependence upon him and are obedient to him. Only as Christ is in us can we be one. Our differences are too great. Our flesh is too strong to allow us to be bound together except by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unity is not only to be the experience of every disciple, but it's also to show the commitment of every disciple. And our unity as a church directly related to our obedience as disciples. Our unity will only be as great as our spiritual maturity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the model of oneness. But we have to ask why. What's the purpose behind the model? Is it because if oneness is modeled for others, then perhaps they will listen to the message of oneness. Verse 23. The message of oneness. <coughs> I think I sang those Christmas carols too loud. Verse 23. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. So here Jesus goes on to say, verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me. This message is nothing less than the good news that Jesus Christ was sent into the world by God the Father to save sinners. 
the end of verse 25, tells us the disciples have already accepted this message. It says, these know that you have sent me. And it's important for us to realize as well, there can be no unity in our church if we don't individually and collectively accept the message of Christ. If we don't understand who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and what Jesus Christ did, that he died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself and paying the penalty for those sins, and then rose again from the dead, conquering both sin and death. If we don't understand those two things, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, then there is no way we can be unified as the body of Christ. We're unified by what we believe, by our doctrine, by what the Bible says, and by how well we live it, and by how well we share it as part of our everyday lives. This is the foundation of our unity. The church in unity is attractive. But as we just saw in the opening story, the flip side is that the church in disunity is unattractive. And to be honest with you, I don't think the world can see this unity very well today. You know what they, what they say, old saying, where you have one believer, you have a Christian, where you have two believers, you have a church, and where you have three believers, you have two churches. The world today looks at the church, and they see Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox, Baptists and Brethren, Congregationalists and Church of Christ, Methodists and Mennonites, Pentecostals and Presbyterians. And needless to say, they're both skeptical and confused. See, the world isn't looking at our marketing or our media, our telecasts, our websites, or our study materials. They're looking at us and how we act. And when the world fails to see the unity of Christ's followers, the church, it fails to see that Christ is the Son of the living God. And if believers aren't living close to Christ, if the face they present to the world is that of a group of people bickering among themselves and criticizing everyone else, then who in the world would want to join them? The world can be just as unhappy where it is. And that's, I think, why the Lord is praying for unity in the church. So as ungodly people are introduced to the church, they'll be convinced that this is of God. And they'll believe in Christ for themselves because they've seen and sensed Christ in the midst of his people. Our display of unity should be so compelling, so different from what the world is used to seeing that it can only be explained by our need of Christ and our commitment to Christ. The message of oneness has two parts. Not only must it be proclaimed with words of truth, but it must also be demonstrated with actions of love. And when the world sees the church united in truth and in love, then it cannot be anything but impressed because the world cannot produce a unity like that. Only the truth of Christ is adequate to explain it. Which brings us to the next piece of this puzzle, which is the method of oneness 
I want to focus on verses 23 and 26. It says there that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And then verse 26. I may know to, known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And as we read that, it becomes apparent that the method of oneness, the means by which Christians are unified and living for, through, and in Christ, is love. And this can only happen because God loves you, hear this, God loves you in the same way he loves Jesus. That's a remarkable statement. God loves you in the same way he loves Jesus. And God gives you the same love that he gave Jesus. And here Jesus prays that God's love may be within us and displayed as we become loving people. And he prays that God's love may be among us and displayed in our love for each other. His last words to his people And Jesus prays. And he prays that this love of God would be made manifest in his people. Now, there's no unity apart from keeping Christ's command uh, of John 13, which we saw right as we opened this sort of section here. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unity without love is merely a temporary unity forced by outside circumstances. And when those circumstances change, the unity disappears. And you don't have to look far for examples. Look at any major crisis in the last 20 years. The Persian Gulf War, 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. We initially rally as a country, and it's a great feeling. But as soon as the war event crisis is over, things start to drag out a little bit. Our nation reverts to constantly criticizing each other. It's almost as if these events hadn't happened. But when unity is based on love and is maintained by love, then the circumstances, either good or bad, have no effect upon the unity. Unity driven by love thrives in all situations, and it's a characteristic mark of the believing community. Jesus prays that we might be a convincing testimony, and the world is waiting to see divine love in action in the Christian community. One of the most distinctive things about Jesus was his love for his father, family, friends, followers, and his foes. He loved Judas as he loved John. He loved Pilate as he loved Peter. He loved the two dying thieves. He loved the Roman soldier whose spear pierced his side. He loved the man who punched him in the face, the man who crowned him with thorns, the man who scourged him to the bone, the man who spat in his face, the man who mocked him on the cross. He loved them all. 
love, the essence of God's being, the one word definition of God was embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus walked this earth as a living, breathing, moving, three-dimensional, stereophonic, visual, full-color presentation of love. Love shown in all that he was, in all that he said, in all that he did. And I think, in closing this prayer, Jesus is saying something to the effect of, now, Father, these people of ours must love like that. My love is to be their love. But I know these people, they mean well, but they don't have what it takes. So I'll be in them. And then my love will be their love. And the prayer was over. The model of oneness demonstrates love. The message of oneness presents love to the world. The method of oneness is obedience to the command to love. Because everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody who belongs to Jesus. Still, when it's all said and done, unity is an elusive concept for most Christians. I think that's partly because we haven't seen it very much and partly because we don't know how to get there from here. There's three things that I think are needed to move us as believers and us as a church in the direction of unity. There's probably a lot more than three things, but there's at least these three things. And first, uh, very quickly, unity lives in community. Unity lives in community. Unity comes through community, through worshiping together, through studying God's Word together, through serving together. So the question is, are you part of the togetherness? Are you truly worshiping with us, or are you just going through the motions and taking up space? Are you really studying God's Word with us in Sunday school and Sunday worship and Bible study? Are you just meeting a social obligation? Are you serving the community with us? Are you serving others outside of the church community? Or are you just watching? Unity lives in community, and you need to be a part of it. Second, unity lives in continuity. Unity lives in continuity. It comes through your regular presence, and it comes through your regular presence. What do you say? Unity comes through your regular presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, your regular giving. And unity comes through your regular presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, your regular attendance. You know, the two most important things in most people's lives are time and money. We can talk about a lot of stuff, what's important to us, but, you know, really want to know if you follow God, pull out your checkbook and your day timer. Or your palm pilot. I'll tell you where God ranks, because those things will tell me. And I think that's why Jesus lays claim to those very things. He wants your money. Because as you give your money to Christ and his church, you're making a statement that Christ comes first in your life. Christ wants your public commitment that he's more important to you than your money and he also wants your time time spent with him and time spent with his people 
I've said before that the church is the relationship place. Unity is built on relationships, and relationships take time. And as you give your time to Christ and His church, again, you're making a statement that Christ comes first in your life, and that's what He wants. Christ wants your public commitment that He's more important to you than your time. Unity comes in continuity. And third, unity lives in confession. Lives in confession. Unity comes through your willingness to repent. And unity comes through your willingness to forgive. Are we eager to forgive those who hurt us? To accept those who are different from us? To prefer those who disagree with us? To love those who attack us? to submit to those over us, to trust those who lead us, to go to those who hurt us, to be patient with those who disagree with us? If not, we need to repent. We need to ask God for a change of heart, for a change in our hearts, for a cleansing from the sin that keeps us from wanting that degree of love and unity. I'm not talking about a feeling here, but a basic attitude. Unity begins with an attitude of heart that is the fruit of brokenness in our lives. God doesn't want us to be the judge of other people's hearts and lives. He wants us to judge our own. It's when we lose that brokenness and become hard and judgmental that we lose our eagerness for unity. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not trying to forget the bad things uh, done to us. It's an act of the will. It's giving the person something they haven't earned the right to have. It's giving them a pardon. Forgiveness acknowledges that we've been wronged, but goes beyond that and extends mercy. Sometimes we have to forgive people again and again until that... uh, resentfulness and that critical spirit has left our hearts. Forgiveness gives us the freedom to give out love, to give up self, and to give in to God's grace. You see, we are God's I love you to a lost and dying world. And if that's going to be true of us, then unity is absolutely essential. If we believe that what Jesus prays for us is actually possible and that he will accept nothing less than our total heartfelt obedience, then we've been cornered. No more excuses, no more rationalizations. If we choose to follow Jesus, we must do so on his terms, not ours. And he makes very clear here that love and unity are part of his terms. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, I imagine that each one of us here has been part of disunity, has sown discord, has been divisive. We all need to repent. We all need to seek unity and demonstrate that unity by our love for each other. And that is 
so hard to do. And we in this church and, and we as Christians in all churches repeatedly fail at loving and at showing unity. We ask that you would forgive us and enable us to forgive others and enable us to ask them for forgiveness. And Lord, we're too stubborn to accomplish this in our own strength. So we ask that your spirit would work powerfully in us to bring this about. That your spirit would be the cause of our unity in Christ. Your spirit would be the cause of the love of God working in our lives. Fathers, we wait for Christmas, the celebration of Christ. Enable us to do that in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. We ask this in his name. Amen.